Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That's narrative, Adam. That's narrative. It is Monday, which means it's time for the Front 3 Weekend Review with me, Adam Boltwood. Lawrence McKenna's here as well. Hello. Chris Hennage is here. Hello. And so is David O'Brien. Hello. Hello indeed. Guys, thanks so much for joining us on the Weekend Review. We're going to be talking Manchester United, Manchester City. We're talking all the big teams, all the big talking points from the Premier League this weekend. And later on, football writer Colin Miller is going to join us to talk Neymar versus Cavani. The sequel situation has taken an interesting turn. We'll come on to that in part two. For now, though, we've got to talk the Premier League, Dave. There's only one place to start, and that is with Manchester United. A momentous 1-0 win away from home at Southampton. Uh, fifth clean sheet of the season for Jose Mourinho. I mean, across Manchester City might be scoring goals for fun, but this is a sort of win real champions are made of right narrative yeah i think so. i think so i think it's, it builds um you know builds a built great building block for united to transition from you know playing four at the back to playing five at the back when they've got a lead it was the first sort of time Mourinho's reacted in that way this season and it really worked for united so strong defensively and i think that will be the difference between the two manchester clubs it's you know who can in a way push these results out and, you know, have a position of a lead and then hold on to that, even though their opposition may have the ball. That will happen with Manchester City this season. So it's an interesting start from United. Do you know, I think it was a bit negative. Maybe I saw a bit of criticism from some United fans saying that, uh, you know, Mourinho shut up shop too early almost. He invited this upon his side. Well, if you take off some big chances that United created in the, the last part of the game, you think the Herrera chance that blazed over the bar after some great work from Lukaku... Or, you know, for example, Marouan Fellaini being put clean through and his legs just not been able to take him to put, you know, the cherry on the cake. Those two chances go in, it's 3-0. It's three I don't think a 1-0 result we've seen over the last few seasons in the Premier League, 1-0 wins titles uh, with Leicester City, with Chelsea. So for me, it's a very, very good result. And if you think of last season, that was a 0-0 draw. So United have already gained two points on what they did last season. Momentous. As I said before, momentous. Um, talk to me about Lukaku on the pitch. Um, obviously, can't stop scoring we'll, we'll come on to the off the pitch stuff in a second um, but continuing his impressive start 
Yeah, I'd say so. I think the thing that you saw with this performance from Romelu Lukaku is it's probably his, his most complete performance in terms of his his all, ho, overall game, in terms of how he was receiving the ball on the channels, being a target man, his finishing and also his, his creating of the chances, as I mentioned before. What I really liked as well is that United only really created him two chances and he scored one goal. You know, that's a very, very good um, you know, feeling for, for the team that if they will, they can get Lukaku in the penalty area, they can cross to him or they can get a ball to his feet. He probably will put the ball in the back of the net. It's almost like Diego Melito-esque um, is how I sort of spoke about it in my uh, three-point review on my YouTube channel. So it's one of these things where it's uh, it's starting to look really good for Manchester United already. There will be bigger tests and it will be more of an attack versus defence in the bigger games and I'm looking forward to those. Obviously off the pitch we've still got this whole chant sort of situation rumbling on Lawrence the latest is the player seems to have asked for his agent uh, for the fans to stop it that seems to be the message coming out from Lukaku and Manchester United have apparently asked for CCTV footage from the game at the weekend to try and help identify fans who uh, sort of sang this uh, well controversial chant uh, yeah for me I think this is um, it's an incredibly it might appear to be an incredibly sort of cut and dry thing, um, which is don't, you know, don't say racist things. I think some fans are going to, are going to talk about there being uh, levels of affection in there for a player and the almost David Brent-esque level of what what's offensive about complimenting someone like that. And I, I think that's definitely something that should be acknowledged um, in terms of if it doesn't come from a place of malice, then, um, you know, these people don't necessarily see the harm that they're doing. And then you you have the flip side where um, you see the very direct effect of it, which is if it upsets the person that is about directly and the people around them, then that's one direct effect. And if it feels in some way like there's um, a problem, which there definitely is, with racism in English football, then maybe it's best to stay away altogether from that. Not be, not until a better time, permanently. Um, the club have asked for it, the player have asked for it, and I think it's best to respect the player as much as you respect Manchester United as a club, I think Manchester United, are, you know, a fantastic team for reaching out to num- a number of different um, minority groups within the game. And that makes uh, a huge difference. And I think it's vitally important that the club and everyone surrounded in it make their voice heard on this one, because uh, otherwise I think, it, you know, it can appear to be complicit with the problem in a way. Um, and I think Manchester United dealt with it very well in the first place. Mm. And, seem to be uh, creating somewhat of a united front against something which has been quite difficult. I think there is something that's worth acknowledging here. Very often people who are associated with racism can be demonised in some way. Um, and very often I think uh, that that's pr- probably a, a very um, cathartic way to deal with it. Uh, in this case, I don't think these people are being racist in a, um, in a, in a, in a sense where they mean harm but I don't think that they necessarily know the effects. Um, and I don't see that as a defence, but at the same time, I think it's worth acknowledging that because it's very different from some of the background and other racism that's going on in other sports around the world at the moment. I think the fact that they sung it again this weekend shows that they don't really care what anyone thinks. Don't really care what Lukaku thinks, don't really care what the club think. And at that point, it becomes less about celebrating a player to me and more about someone wanting to to express themselves in a way that they feel is acceptable. I think. Do you, do you think? Do you think, though, Chris, that seeing that as acceptable within a group, um, and maybe not a group uh, which is predominantly of that minority, which in this case is someone who's black, and I'm also very careful because it's four white guys on a podcast discussing something and a club, uh, you know, that are already dealing with it. But do you, do you think that there is some sort of 
don't tell us what to say. Yeah, basically, uh, that, that's yeah. essentially 100%. That's what it is. They're, they're being, I think, in, in a less than subtle way, um, they're essentially saying, you know, yeah, don't tell, don't tell us what to chant. And and I think, as I said last week, football's weird because it seems to exist in this vacuum whereby if you said that to someone on the street, you would probably get a slap or uh, castigated. But football contains itself in this bubble where you can pretty much say whatever you like and it's dusted off as well. You know, that's just the way the terraces work. I think, honestly, they've got to stop it. They've got to find the people singing it, whatever, and and take some form of action because he's made it abundantly clear he doesn't want it sang. And I think when it reaches that stage, especially, you could, there's no there's no argument point past that. It's a difficult one because it's. It, I think it's also um, you you also want to be mind, mindful of the fact that. Um, where where your club's roots come from, and you know where the club uh, want want to take those sort of things. And I think Manchester United, I've, de- I've dealt with it uh, in a, in a very corporate fashion, granted, but very well so far. Just because you sing the Park song and the Vintage song doesn't mean you can sing the Lukaku song. I think that's the best way to get. I think very. I think also it's worth it's worth saying. I think uh, just because a song is meant from a place of affection doesn't mean you know there's it doesn't mean necessarily that it makes someone feel comfortable. Do you know what I mean? I love your massive nose. Yeah, well, you know, let's, I, I don't, I don't feel like that's a term of affection. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, let's talk Manchester city though, on the other side of Manchester, a big five nil win for them against crystal palace, uh, 21 goals now in their first six games in the league. Um, but do you want to hear a, a good stat about this, Dave? I'm going to blow your mind right now, maybe. You might, you might already Which know this, being a stammer. Um, it's only the fifth time in Premier League history that a team at the top of the table, after six games, has scored 21 goals. Uh, but on those previous four occasions, none of those sides have gone on to win the title. So basically that means Manchester United are going to win the league, right? It's great news for you. Yeah, simple, isn't it? It's already happened, right? <laughs> it, just, it just makes sense. Um, talk to me about Manchester City, though. Obviously, what was it? Is it 16... 16- 16 nil and aggregate in their past three games now. Yeah, I think it, it'll be. It's an interesting period for Manchester City. It's similar to last season in a way. What they won eight on the spin in the first eight games. So, I think it's going to be a, a period for Guardiola to deal without Mendy. Mendy's would look so good, and Mendy's arguably been one of the reasons why they've been so destructive. Of course, the Crystal Palace result, the five nil. You kind of expected that. I think Manchester City, with or without ben- Benjamin Mendy, would have battered Crystal Palace. This Crystal Palace team doesn't put any pressure on in midfield. You're doing that against David Silva, who's probably been one of the best central midfielders this season, and Kevin De Bruyne. You know, you're asking for trouble. So it was kind of like, you know, completely taking them apart and um, an interesting display from, you know, a lot of the forwards. Sterling had a very good game again. But I do think it's going to be about Mendy and how Guardiola can sort of, you know, almost manage him because going forward one of the best left backs in world football but he's already had one injury at City now he's got another injury is it going to be another player that Guardiola seems to mismanage in terms of them coming back we saw Gundogan um, you know come back into a Manchester City shirt and has he picked up another injury it's just an injury I don't I don't know whether Guardiola's managing it too right in that sort of sense who is Mendy's deputy as it were who's going to be taking his place when he's injured is it Danilo who, who can fill on that left hand side yeah, Danilo will will come in, but obviously he's a he's a right back by trade. 
yeah. Hey Lawrence, and uh, he's probably better on the right hand side than left hand side going forward. So obviously in that final third, he's going to be more naturally coming into his right foot than going wide like Mendy does on his left foot and crossing. So it's just a different element for Manchester City, and maybe it's time for Carl Walker to take a bit of you know attacking responsibility on that right hand side. Whenever I've watched City, I've not really been impressed with Walker yet. I don't think we've seen that same output that he had at Tottenham last season. You know when he was mm. taking players on, chopping. Yeah, you know, creating goals on his own. So I think it's going to be time for him to step up and him to sort of step out these shadows and, and see if he can really prove to people why he's worth 50 million quid. Hmm. The frightening thing, I think, for uh, for uh, rivals Manchester City, Lawrence, is the depth in this squad. Obviously, Leroy Sané now is, is the man of the moment um, after, you know, his performances both in this game and in the week in the in the Carabao Cup. But, you know, the embarrassment of riches they got up front meant, you know, Sané can come in. Gabriel Jesus didn't even play in this game against Crystal Palace, and yet they can still blow away teams. They're so strong. They've got so much strength in depth, haven't they? I think what you can add to that point about strength is that the goals also come from, obviously, you see Sterling and... Uh, Aguero and Sane scoring the goals over the weekend, but they, they've got the ability to whip in across from the left, um, you know, work a ball from the right and vice versa. And and for that reason, you don't necessarily worry that just one, one player is out of that because it feels like he can rotate people in and out. Um, and then at the same time, you know, there's, it's not only about the depth, I think it's probably also about the coaching, which sort of speaks to Dave's point that, you know, before people would mock someone like Fabian Delph for being on the pitch, but now he's taking a ball to the feet from David Silva and then whipping it in the top corner. And it seems like that sort of environment and the coaching and the positivity that that's created is good for them. I, I mean, I, I'd still say that uh, at this point, I think last season we were all tipping them for the title. We were saying, you know, no one can work them out. And, uh, you know, it was very, it was a very different situation then. He didn't necessarily have all the armory, but even then I think, there are going to be more challenges for the City team. It's not just a case of sweeping the league conclusively because I think they're going to face much more robust challenges than Crystal Palace um, this season. Yeah, and 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 a lot of and you know a lot of other teams. You know, I, I, they they swept they swept Liverpool aside, but Liverpool crumbled very easily after that. And you know, it, it's great to see them scoring all these goals. There's something incredibly satisfying. But you know, is it is it is this is this uh, going to be the case all season? No, I don't think mm. so. Uh, to be fair to Palace, they did look decent in that first half. They did pose problems for Manchester City. Uh, Ruben, they didn't score until went. late in that first half. It was it was really it yeah. was after uh, the yeah exactly the, the struggle to break them down. Um, uh, the fact of the matter is though, Palace, saying, they, they, they didn't score one goal when uh, Mendy was on the pitch. So they'll be fine with that. Palace though, Dave, uh, do remain now the the only team in Europe's top five leagues to, uh, to have not scored a single league goal this season. Uh, do you think Roy Hodgson might be, uh, might be regretting taking this one on? Uh, I think it's going to be a difficult task for them. Obviously, they're, apparently they're playing a, a game against a fifth division team uh, midweek to get some confidence back up for the trip uh, to play Manchester United. The, the sort of shining <laughs> light... It's to backfire, hasn't it? <laughs> it just doesn't... You know, it sounds so bad. You know, we've got to play... We've got to go and get some... got to play a midweek game because we are so out of shape in terms of our confidence, in terms of how we're playing and everything. But I do think Loftus-Cheek's probably been their standout star. He's completed more dribbles than any other midfielder or attacking midfielder in the Premier League this season uh, from a central area. And he's got like a 70% chance, uh, sorry, 70% success rate on those take-ons. But I think without him, he needs to do a bit of work on his game, but he just seems to be the shining light. Without someone like Zaha, they like lack real creativity in that final third. And Benteke, as we've spoke about, 
looked the same as he looked last week, where he seemed to be in the wrong position. His teammates weren't re- reading his flick-ons. It just seemed all wrong. So it's going to be a big, big test for them and Roy Hodgson to see if he's worthy of the job, eh, for the World Cup you know, this summer. You know, I, I am still uncomfortable as well with how people, and even you know, even on uh, the other podcast, uh, True Geordie, that I do, sort of the disrespect of Roy Hodgson, because... I understand that he's not Pep Guardiola, he's not Jurgen Klopp, he's not this incredibly, um, you know, enigmatic character that walks out there and, you know, has his intense philosophy which motivates people uh, beyond what other people could achieve. But I certainly think that there are um, there, there are pluses to having Roy Hodgson as a manager that I think still need to be acknowledged. And as much as he's not at the very forefront of the game now, I do find it weird that people think, well, he's, you know, he's gone just because he doesn't embody everything that Pep or Conte or anything, anyone else embodies. I, find that, I, I just find it really weird. The thing with Roy Hodgson is it will be, even though we think that he's this terrible manager and whatever, what he did with Fulham and how he got them so defensively rigid. And, you, you, you know, I've been reading the mixer, the Michael Cox book, that's very good. You know, he talks about that Fulham side, how they were so... Almost all they would do in training is defensive shape, defensive shape, defensive Drills, shape. Yeah. And what you're seeing at the moment in Premier League football is that teams that do the defensive shape work and they do it well, they'll do well in the Premier League. You think Newcastle this yeah. season, think Chelsea at the weekend that we'll talk about a little bit later on. Same thing, Mourinho, Manchester United, defensive work rate, defensive shape. So I think that Roy Hodgson will actually turn this around. It may take some time and take some signings maybe in January, but I think he will do. And I think if Palace sacked him now this season, there's just no. They might as well delete their club. Start again. <laughs> delete the club. It, it took. Um, it did take Allardyce as well uh, a fair bit of time to sort of get his defence organised uh, at Palace as well. So I'm, I'm sure um, it's a tough run. English, they've been on. English. There you go. Uh, speaking of defensive issues, though, Lawrence, we do have to talk about Liverpool, who uh, who came away from oh, the King seamless. Power Stadium with a three-two win, a real thriller against Leicester City. A very entertaining game for the neutral, perhaps less so for Liverpool fans, probably had the hearts in their mouths, especially when uh, Mignolet came rushing out. Uh, I'm not quite sure he didn't use his hands on, on that one, when he conceded the, the penalty. Sort of just lumped Jamie Vardy for some reason. But uh, well, the, the ball was quite low, wasn't it? So yeah. I think that was the... Are you saying he should have gone to feet to get the ball? Maybe, I just couldn't understand why he didn't go with his hands, or at least uh, attempt it, rather than just sort of think, swipe at it. I think, I think it was David Priest as well who retweeted in which... Um, was uh, I mean, it was basically saying, obviously, Mignolet got the ball and mm. then Vardy hit him and, you know, whether it was a penalty or not. It was clumsy. It was clumsy. But um, it was it was clumsy. But I, I also think, I mean, he did, he did kick the ball and, and touched it. It didn't really, the ball was going to go in the other direction. I, I'm not 100% sure it was a penalty. I'm not quite sure why it was he, called that way. He saved it in the end. He did save it in the end. He became the, he sort of was the villain for about 10 seconds then became the hero. He said he wrote it in justice. He wrote, write it, write it. <laughs> he wrote it. Yeah, yeah. He, he fixed it. He, he did what he needed to do. Yeah. But the fact remains, well, Liverpool can't defend apparently. Still can't defend. This is yeah. dominating the conversation now. It's uh, the same every week. Yeah, I can also just say, I think um, the analysis of, uh, not everyone watches match of the day, but the analysis of, did anyone else see the Danny Murphy's analysis of penalties? Mm, with Jimmy Vardy yeah yeah it was a bit of a weird analysis wasn't it Chris he sort of he paused it um, and then in what was you know 0. whatever seconds that it takes Jamie Vardy to get to the ball he sort of say he looks down too soon and you think well he's got peripheral vision he's not sort of got the tunnel vision on a ball but Jamie Vardy does have a funny uh, technique for penalty he just he literally just hammers it down the middle of the goal yeah and you it's funny in so much as it's uncultured like, 
Well, it's, it's weird because you're like, you're a striker, mate. Like, surely you can strike a... De- like, surely if you are the penalty guy for um, for Man City, then you should be, like, putting it top... Like, you know, Raheem Sterling took a penalty a few weeks ago. Not Obviously not the main penalty guy. Put it in the roof of the net. Like, if you're going to be the guy who takes penalties, don't just hammer it down the middle. But then that's the beauty of Vardy's style of play is it's a, it's a throwback and it's very... It's very much saved. rooted in like non-league football. <laughs> and he should have had other penalties saved. That's not beautiful. No, I, when I say the beauty, I mean like the 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 reason I think people appreciate Vardy is like, and I've talked about this before, I spoke to the guy at Stocksbridge at Chelsea and he said his game hasn't changed at all. He's very, very much been and always been an on-the-shoulder striker that finds space in behind. And yeah, He's I mean... He's got no shoulder to be on on his penalties. It's, yeah, that's the thing. His penalty... Style is is very uncultured, uh, and yet I think it probably catches most goalkeepers. Obviously, Mignolet had the benefit of research off guard because it's so it's so rudimentary in its approach that he does just absolutely hit it as hard as he can, preferably down the middle. Um, I think maybe that's an avenue where he'll probably look to evolve now because uh, I'm pretty sure Mignolet confirmed that he had seen previous stuff or they'd done work on that and I think well, Courtois almost saved it as well he could have missed two penalties this season so if he keeps doing it that way knowing what he knows now then you know he's he's a, a fool or on the flip side of that he's now in the ultimate position in game theory where people think he's going to go down the middle and now he can just put it to the sides yeah exactly I mean it's I, either way what he really should do is just develop a penalty technique that isn't hammering it I think is what we're all thinking. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's the issue. I think the play, for me, it's not the his. That was his blatantly the issue. The he missed the penalty because because he hammered it. Yeah, but I think it's more his placement, not his striking. I think his placement. I mean, is where he's getting the caught striking, out, right? yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. I think technique wise, I mean, he hits the ball well. He hits it quickly, which is um, what you want for a penalty. He hits it with power, but it's his placement, right? He needs to put it bottom corner, top corner. You know, the ultimate game theory is to randomize where you put your penalties, and he's obviously not doing that. He's just putting it down the middle. Yeah, and you sort of hope as a striker that he would be able be able to do that. Um, ultimately, that's not about Liverpool's defence, obviously. So sorry, was, uh, my answer went completely off the rails there. I think what we're all agreeing is place your penalty somewhere different every time. Um, be a good striker. You know, work on it. You know, I don't... I change the programmes I edit on. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, um, yeah, Liverpool's defensive issues are interesting. Klopp, um, I think Klopp's getting a little bit maybe he's sort of people are rightly criticizing him, but maybe some of the disrespect maybe that's going towards Klopp speak, people speaking about him as if there is no sort of defensive plan. And maybe that's a result of the way that his Liverpool team is playing. Um, but he was talking about being able to re uh, being able to write a defensive book, you know, a complete book in two hours and how he's normally very different in the way that he coaches or he feels that there's different results in the way that he coaches his team. Um, I, I'm getting a little bit bored of just people over and over again, speaking about you know um Klopp doesn't have a plan for this doesn't have a plan for this um (laughs) I think the the crazy thing that we're seeing at the moment is that Klopp is one of the best defensive managers in the world in terms of how he organizes a press it's like in the maybe the second phase or the third phase is where he's getting caught out now but to say he's defensively naive or he can't organize players is absolutely crazy because so weird if you want a pressing system, that has to be all on, you know, cohesion, team unity. They need to work on that in training. It's not like he turns up and goes, right, lads, back line, you stand there for the whole game. You know, there's a lot of 
with it with the with Liverpool style, it's very fluid. And I think maybe there's some parts that he needs to readdress. There's some parts, you know, for example, the the space behind the fullbacks. That is something that he needs to address. But to say that he's defensively naive is almost embarrassing punditry. I think that's just it's just stupid. It doesn't make it, to me. It doesn't make any sense because it's quite clear that um, there are a lot of lessons being learned by some of these people. And I think some people are almost mid-lesson um, in terms of Lovren working out where he needs to go. Um, uh, Matip's a funny one. People seem very openly critical of Joel Matip. I don't, it's, and I understand he's making mistakes, but he's also he's, there are so many things he does in the game where you think, well, he's a fantastic defender for doing that. Um, he's big. He's, he's, he's got a real presence on the pitch. There's a lot of sorts of positives to having him. He's invested in Robertson, who seems like a very good left back. He's training Trent Alexander-Arnold, who has kept some fantastic players in his back pocket, but hasn't necessarily always been consistent or when he's been run out has had real issues. So I, I do think it comes down to individual training and coaching and bringing those guys together as a unit rather than Klopp being the main issue there. It's, it, it strikes me as weird when people analyse like that. Mm. I mean, they're just going to outscore everyone. So it's, it's well, that's fine. yeah, but I mean, when you when you hang on barely with the by the skin of your teeth, then that is, um, you know, that's not a way to it not is, a way to win things. It's the consistency, I think, as well. Under Klopp, Liverpool seem to have struggled to to maintain a consistency in terms of results, back to back wins, etc. And they now have a sort of a tough game going up against Spartak Moscow. This victory against Stoke being their first in four matches, you know, now they face a tough European tie. Uh, Spartak Moscow haven't they only lost once at home last season. Uh, Spartak are missing their main man and I also think um, from what else I've heard about them, they're not having the same season they had last year. Things are looking quite different for them. Um, so it, yeah, it's, obviously it's always our game in the Champions League but uh, I think it is going to be a different match uh, mm. to maybe one that Liverpool would have faced last season. However, Liverpool have the ultimate um, way of just messing things up when things look good. So you know, expect that. And then, um, you know, it's, I mean, it's also uh, the the idea that it, Liverpool do actually just need to find some consistency in like in some places, like you say. So uh, there's there's no better place to start than in the Champions League. Uh, Coutinho's back on the score sheet though at the weekend uh, against Leicester. Yeah, it doesn't look as passionate for Liverpool fans. Doesn't quite look. He doesn't. You know, he, he celebrated. Everyone looked very happy for him, but he's not really come out and said anything which unifies the fans and him so far. Mm. I'll be interested to see whether some scars heal over time, but it, yeah. I was a little bit disappointed. Klopp I was, seemed I was to be pleased with the, the fan reaction towards him, though. Yeah, but he's got a tail party line, hasn't he? So. Anyway, the reports today are he wants to leave in January, so it's all going to be over then anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's talk. If, if Naby Keita comes in January, I'd imagine that uh, there'll yeah. be elements, uh, it might the, be uh, elements of the Liverpool hierarchy that say let Coutinho go. Keita is there to... Um, make sure the Liverpool fans don't feel bad about Coutinho leaving. Uh, also this weekend in the Premier League, uh, West Ham lost their cup final against Spurs. Uh, big win, 3-2 in the end for Tottenham. Left clinging on somewhat towards the end of the game after Serge Aurier was sent off for uh, just a ridiculous sort of double yellow um, to get sent off. Uh, paying the bill really worked for Mauricio Pochettino here, Chris. Took the team out for a meal in the week. Seven grand, I think he said the uh, the bill came to. But the team around the team bonding. Yeah, it was it was a big on Nando's. I think Musa Zoko got free whole chickens. I think that's the rumour doing the rounds. But, uh, you know, worked out in the end for Spurs. Although I'd say, Chris, the scoreline didn't reflect how dominant Pochettino's side were. Yeah, I thought the, the first half, they, they cut them home fairly easy. It wasn't too impressed with Bilic's decision to, to bring Carol on when Antonio went down, I thought. 
Ayu or someone would have been a better better option. Um, slightly concerned by Aurier in so much as he's conformed to the stereotype that I had him pinned as very quickly. Um, I think he'll be a high-risk, high-reward type fullback for you because he's very aggressive, likes to attack, um, but also makes very stupid decisions both on and off the field. Um, but I also really like Christian Eriksen in this game. I thought, you know, you look at the pass for the first goal, you look at his 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 own goal in the second half. I do think he's a little bit underrated um, as a as a midfielder, and and yeah, I think there's a lot of positives from from Spurs to take. I just think West Ham are so bereft of ideas that it would have taken something spectacular for Spurs not to win this. Christian Eriksen now the highest scoring Dane in uh, in Premier League history, finally overtaking the legend himself, Nicholas Bentner. So, uh, yeah, quite an achievement, quite a milestone there. Uh, on West Ham, though, Dave, I mean, Chris mentioned it there. There's question marks over his team selection, over the substitutions he made, how he set up for this game. I think, you know, most West Ham fans would now be of the opinion that it is time for Bilic to go. But do you think, even if he did end up getting a sack, would it even make a difference? Would it even matter? It doesn't solve the large issues at the club uh, in that they seem to be directionless in the way they run. The transfer policy, the transfer uh, strategy over the summer didn't really seem to add up. And they're now left with this incredibly unbalanced squad. Whether Billich stays or wherever he goes, it doesn't really, it doesn't solve it. I think the big problem with West Ham is that they've missed Silver. They should have got Silver in. If West Ham had someone like Silver as their manager now, we're seeing the impact on, on Watford again. A very, very impressive win um, away at Swansea. If they had got someone like that instead of someone having like Billich, who seems to be inept in transfers inept in tactics especially defensive tactics so the big thing that he came in West Ham started to score goals West Ham started to beat teams by you know Dimitri Payet carrying their attack so I think it's one of these things where it just doesn't make any sense right now to have Billich at the football club I said at the start I said before the appointment it was a bad appointment um, he seemed to have had a big impact at the start of his tenure in the first few months or, you know, whatever. In terms of Croatia, it was an impact in that, that lasted a few uh, you know, a year or so because of the length of that managerial thing and how international clubs work. But there's always this peak and then it just drops off. His win rate just crashes. And that's without looking into the tactical side of it. And I just don't think he's getting anything right at West Ham at all right now. Do you think it's really going to improve the situation, though, Chris, if, say... I know Roberto Mancini is a name who's been linked with the job. If he comes in, is he really going to be able to turn this round to a significant extent uh, The Billish can't? Um, the squad isn't a bad squad. That's the thing. There's some decent players in there, obviously. Hernandez, Arnautovic, they're fairly proven Premier League players. I think if, if you were to bring Mancini in, I know he's not... Uh, terribly happy at Zenit, which is is a bit bizarre given he spent the, a small fortune. Then at least he'll give them an identity. I think that's the problem. If you look at the club top down, whether it's the way that they approach transfers, whether it's the play on the field, the link from academy to first team, there's just no identity there. You you can't really tell what they're trying to do, and and they seem to just lurch from from idea to idea on a weekly basis. And and I think you look at the summer, it was all proven names, which is great. But Zabaleta at, what was it, mid-30s, Joe Hart on a really downward turn. They're well-known names, but they're not even close to being in good form or with good momentum, which I think is part of the problem. Elsewhere this weekend, uh, Everton secured a much-needed win, uh, 2-1 in the end. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Against Bournemouth at Goodison Park. Uh, much needed for Ronald Koeman, I think it's fair to say. Uh, it was an unlikely hero in the end though, Lawrence, who saved the Toffees. It's true. Um, Nias came on um, after Rooney got injured because of his big bloody eyebrow um, and got taken off and he changed the game um, in terms of his contribution anyway, scoring two. Um, and again, it's sort of worth reiterating this guy a year ago didn't have a locker in the Everton uh, dressing room. I didn't really know people said lockers, um, but you know, he didn't have a locker so he couldn't put his stuff anywhere. And therefore people assume that he wasn't welcome in some way, despite being part of the club. Um, so you know it's it's a good uh, it's it's a great story in the first place, but it isn't really. I mean, maybe it papers over some of the cracks. Everton um, still struggling with build-up play, all sorts of things in their side, and uh, I think maybe the the fact that uh, it was a, not Wayne Rooney that needed tracking in that area, and not the conventional players might have helped them out a little bit because I think Nias will be considered to be um, not an unknown quantity, but a player that is. Less, uh, less of a face than Wayne Rooney. Let's put it this way: if the defence is an iPhone X, Wayne Rooney went off, and you expect it then not to be able to be unlocked. All right, but Nias did it. Well said. Beautiful, beautiful metaphor. Um, Nias, Chris, obviously uh, had a bit of a rough time at Everton last season. I don't think Ronald Koeman said he wasn't fit to wear the shirt or something along those lines, and yet here he is now, saving his bacon almost. Yeah, in, in January. Um, uh, Dave and I did uh, Ball Street's Deadline Day show with um, Ped from uh, the Everton Fan Channel. TV. Yeah, thank you. It's name was escaped me for a second. And he said he was, you know, an atrocious footballer and all this kind of thing. And then he obviously joined Hull. And I said at the time, I, I thought, you know, he had a role to play. It just maybe wasn't in the Everton attack right then in, in that moment. And I think he showed at Hull. He has skills. He's very quick across the ground. He's a, a nuisance of a striker. And that really, for me, is what Everton have been lacking. They've had a number of uh, attacking midfielders that can fill that spot behind everyone from Sigurdsson to Klaassen to, to Rooney, but no one who's as close to a traditional number nine as you're going to find in the ass. So I think really this is more embarrassing for Coleman because he's had to really climb down and, and eat humble pie about this one. And I think he's learned I'm a lesson that really... <laughs> um, he'll never do that. <laughs> um I think he's realised quite harshly that, you know, you can't write players off. You really need to be diplomatic. Even if in private you think, you know, you can't trap a bag of cement, 
don't say that in public for goodness sake mm. um and yeah i hope i hope nias gets something off the back of it i, I assume palace fans are pretty good because apparently they had deadline day deal lined up for him that that fell apart because of an agent fee so yeah it's um it's funny how a butterfly's wings flap and, mm. and all that stuff I did enjoy the sort of, you know, uh, as I was on Twitter at the time of the game, you know, it's sort of all flying past me, all these Everton fans going mad, sort of talking about how desperate Koeman was, how this was the last roll of the dice, how it's never going to work. Then all of a sudden to see that sort of blow up in their faces, those tweets didn't age particularly well, I think it's fair to say. So uh, they were definitely in humble pie afterwards. Yeah. Maybe he was doing the Mourinho on him. Maybe they're do- maybe it was like a collective Mourinho, you know? <laughs> <laughs> In the sen- in the sense of like he's a this guy's a this guy's rubbish like you know he'll get and then he, he it's like reverse psychology <laughs> and it works it works <laughs> just perfectly there, there were some quotes on his on his first touch from Kuman last season or something about like his overall football and ability it was like he just this guy just can't play football so I don't know it feels like another village where he's literally just gone to his bench and gone we've got Calvin Lewis on like Chris mentioned he's he's adding another dimension he's going to run in behind. Who's this other fellow? Nias, you'll do. Throw Nias on. Nias scores two goals. It seems more like it's player-driven than manager-driven, if you get where I'm coming mm. from. What about... I think, that, I think that he went over to his bench and he went, who's he? Nias, give him a try. <laughs> <laughs> a young lad coming through the... Res- yeah, get him yeah, on. Yeah. Don't recognise this yeah. lad. Well, we might as well give it a, give it a roll. Give it a roll of the dice. Um, talk to me about Bournemouth, Dave, because uh, obviously they're 1-0 up in this game it was all looking good for them another defeat now for Eddie Howe's team I think that's five now in the league this season they're only kept off the bottom of the table by Crystal Palace who of course are the worst team in the Premier League right now should we be worried about Eddie Howe you know he came out after the game and said this was his team's best performance of the season if that's the case you know it doesn't exactly inspire confidence in him and his management or does it? Because, you know, we've just seen Nias come off the bench and have an absolute worldie of a game, a player that was nowhere near the squad, a player that has just been thrown to. I think with the performance Eddie Howe mentioned was a very good performance. I think with, with Bournemouth, they always traditionally slow, you know, this slow starters in the Premier League, apart from the, the promotion last season was very slow. I remember hammering them. Um, but I think the problem for me is the signing of Jermaine Defoe. I said that when we were reviewing the transfer window, and I really do think that's an issue. I just don't think Jermaine Defoe is right for this squad. I don't think, you know, Eddie Howe's strikers... They, they, they're part of the system. They work hard. Jermaine Defoe coming to the end of his career, is he going to be able to, you know, apply the same pressure? Someone like Benekafobi or uh, someone like King is going to be able to push on the front. And I think if you, without that in the system, I don't think this Bournemouth team is good enough to allow that. You know, they're not, you know, they're not Real Madrid. They can't allow Ronaldo to do any defensive work. They're not Lionel Messi, you know, sitting on the halfway line, the rest of the team working hard. It's Jermaine Defoe and, and without that, they seem to be, you know, they are this nine players defensive unit, not the 10 that they had in previous seasons. So maybe that's the tax, slight tactical issue that, in fact, Jermaine Defoe, he's not scoring the goals and he's not doing the defensive work. Does he warrant, a, a, you know, a position in the team or should you throw another central midfielder in there? Maybe go with, um, you know, go with Joshua King up front, maybe throw Ryan Fraser in behind. I think there may be a little bit of tweaking that Eddie Howe's got to do to find that stability, but also that work. That's the big thing with Bournemouth for me. They always work very, very hard and they're not, it doesn't seem like there's that, that same level of cohesion with Jermaine Defoe and the team. Right, part two is time to talk to Colin Miller about Neymar versus Cavani. Okay, so we're joined now by Colin Miller, Deputy Editor for Football España. Colin, welcome to the Front Free. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on the show, Adam. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. We're here, of course, to talk about uh, interesting 
development over in the French capital right now. Of course, we saw uh, Edison Cavani and Superstar signing over the summer name. I'll have a little spat last week uh, about who should be taking the penalties uh, for the French team. The reports today, uh, they're all over Twitter, uh, suggest that Edison Cavani has now rejected a 1 million euro sweetener from the club's president, Nasser Al-Khalifi, to hand over penalty duties to his Brazilian teammate. Uh, is that right? Is that the correct uh, sort of reading of the situation? Almost. It's, it, it's close. Um, and it, it technically, technically it's, it's an offer of a new contract for Cavani, um, but, it's, but essentially that, that's, that's what it's aimed to do. Now, as you sort of alluded to there, this is an issue that really came to a head um, during PSG's league win um, against Lyon just over a week ago. Um, and there was a very public on-pitch spat between Cavani and Neymar over who should take a penalty that had been awarded. Now, Cavani is and has been the club's penalty taker. And after some embarrassing um, bickering on, on the pitch, um, it was Cavani that took the penalty. And he actually failed to convert it. But but this this had um this sort of then led to further mumblings of kind of underlying discontent um between those two strikers especially, um and it was pretty clear that PSG needed to act um in some sort of way to quell the tension, and I this this has sort of been sort of bubbling under the surface, and then on Sunday night El País, which um for those unfamiliar. With it is it's the highest selling newspaper here in Spain. Um, it's not it has a sports section, but it, but it's but unlike Marca and As and Mundo Deportivo, it isn't a, a sports focused newspaper. So for them to do this in depth report is relatively rare. Um, and they they released this detailed report then on Sunday, um, kind of giving an insider's view on the situation and the moves that the club have made to try and build a bridge between the two players and it detailed how PSG, how they sent intermediaries and to both the players. They first of all um, contacted Cavani um, with an offer of, of a contract which which is essentially the contract he already had but which would include a clause of 1 million euros should he finish as the top goal scorer in the league that season. Um, and that would be an exchange for him no longer taking the club's penalties, um, which which is, in, on the face of it, very bizarre. Um, and it's obviously obviously is direct has directly led from the incident with Neymar. Now, this is an offer which the Uruguayan um, is said to have refused based on principle. Um, and and I have to understand here that, that whilst it wouldn't it wasn't a solid offer of one million euros not to take the penalties, if the offer of one million euros from to be the top goal scorer and he has scored seven goals in his opening seven league games this season, he's he's on form and he's a he's a player that does tend to tend to get twenty or thirty plus goals a season. So this this was a very real offer that could have been taken up on and and alongside this, um, the club also approached Neymar directly, um, or apparently approached him directly to tell him that his behaviour was unbecoming and that he should apologise and that they were trying their best to ensure that he in future would take penalties. But they did think that he should offer an olive branch, as it were. And apparently um, the player responded to this with, with a flat out no, he, he didn't think he had done anything wrong. And again, then the club again just find themselves at the same stalemate. It does. It does sound quite ridiculous. I mean, obviously these are egos clashing, egos out of control somewhat, uh, potentially more so on Neymar's side. But if Cavani isn't budging, as this report suggests, if Neymar's refusing to back down, I mean, where does that leave this situation? 
Well, there, the report continued that there was a reconciliatory dinner that was arranged by Danny Alves, who, of course, PSG signed um, over the summer. Um, and he's very publicly and notably close friends with his compatriot, Neymar. Now, he had arranged this dinner on Thursday night, and it was reported that Cavani and Neymar were amongst a, a big group of players that were there and were involved and obviously with the aim of maybe trying to sort of clear the air a little bit and maybe brighten the mood but um it appears this wasn't the case um the paper uh, the paper report says that the source that their sources had said that the mood was akin to a funeral <laughs> at, at this dinner and it's a it really didn't appear to clear anything up and then Neymar himself missed uh, the weekend draw up with Montpellier it finished scoreless and it was PSG's worst performance of the season he missed it with a foot injury officially um, and and may, maybe some might be a little bit cynical and think well it might actually be good timing that um, that, that happened in case it was a, a similar incident again on the pitch <laughs> I mean you talk about this this funeral like dinner that was organised there by Dani Alves he's someone obviously you'd expect to be on Neymar's side we saw as much on the pitch when he tried to take the ball off Cavani to to give Neymar a free kick in that very match where this spat exploded. But how has it gone down with the rest of the squad? I mean, are they divided? Does the report suggest certain people are on Neymar's side, others on Cavani's side? Yeah, well, I think that this is an ill feeling that stems um, from the signing of Neymar initially. Now, obviously, this was a 222 million euro sign-in. You know, it blasted away the previous world transfer record. And then, of course, PSG also added Kylian Mbappe, um, which which whenever the the entire deal takes place will be 180 million euros itself. So PSG are under under a bit of pressure to, to sort of meet these financial fair play targets that are set. And and there was quite a lot of talk that there'd be quite a lot of players of PSG's first team squad up for sale following on from this signing. Um, but I mean, obviously, this financial fair play, a lot of people kind of laugh it off as it, it, they're not actually going to fully implement the possible charges against a, a super club, as it were, like PSG. But there is a very real chance that they could be expelled from next season's Champions League if they don't comply. So they really did have to think about about their budget and what they were going to do. Now, El Pais, again, they, they made a list of players um, that were apparently approached by PSG um, and, and were essentially asked, did they want to continue at the club or, or, or would, would they be okay with being made available to other clubs? Now, this list includes Angel Di Maria, Javier Pastore, Blaise Matuidi, Lucas Moura, Julian Draxler, Hatem Ben Arfa, Serge Aurier, and Thiago Silva. Now, obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot of talent in that list. Um, some very big earners as well, you'd imagine. But actually, of that list, only only two, Matuidi and Aurier, eventually left the club. So there's there's a large there's a large group of players that remain that the, that the paper states are are unhappy, and that unhappiness has stemmed from from those talks that, of course, stemmed from from the arrival of Neymar. Um, so, so the report does, does state that the PSG dressing room is largely in support um, in support of Cavani um, based on this sort of general discontent. Um, but I think a few of them might also fear that the kind of dressing room status um, of the star players is being diminished a little bit here. Obviously Cavani it's a hugely, has been a hugely important player for PSG over the past few seasons and he became the club's designated penalty taker as we know. And for this just to be taken away just because essentially just because Neymar feels like it I, th- I think maybe a few, a few a few of those egos might have thought well you know that th- this isn't the way things work around here and obviously as well you've got the flip side of that in fact we've already ma- mentioned Danny Alves who was a summer arrival 
um, who apparently is very close to Neymar, very good friends off the pitch, and, and indeed many people think that's that's the reason he signed for PSG because he knew that Neymar would would arrive after, and then and the Brazilian players at the club are said to be very close. So you've got this real split that has developed, and it's again it's one that could be very very troubling for the club. Do you think? I mean, I think most people would commend. Cavani for his stance, you know, uh, for somewhat the professional integrity, as it were, in turning down this sort of one million offer uh, in this new contract. But, I mean, we're talking about the divisions there and the egos as well in the dressing room. Do you think it wouldn't? It would be better for PSG, it would be better for Cavani, it would be better for the club as a whole if he just accepted that Neymar is now the boss? You know, it's a ridiculous situation, I think it's fair to say, but this is the reality of the club now at PSG. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, it is, it's very easy to blame Neymar um, for this sort of supposed petulance. Um, but in a sense, it is logical that he should think and act the way he, he has done um, due to the nature of the signing, due to his status within the game. I mean, obviously, PSG moved heaven and earth to try, to try and bring him in. Um, however, so the, the reported kind of lack of an apology um, to Gavani, especially whenever this had been been prompted from him, allegedly, uh, I'm not sure, and along with the sort of hardline stance that Gavani's taken, it, it, it's, it's really, it's led to this impasse and sooner rather than later something's going to give. And I think most people recognise that the Uruguayan striker, he's the most vulnerable party that's involved in this at the minute because um, certainly Neymar isn't going to be going anywhere anytime soon. So if, unless this, unless this is sorted, unless he backs down, it is, it's very conceivable that he could leave the club very soon, despite, despite his current form and and his current exploits. Well, yeah, I think as you say, maybe it's best for Cavani to, to accept the situation. I'm not denying there is this petulance on Neymar's part. I mean, if the reports are to be believed that he's demanding Cavani's soul, it certainly doesn't reflect well on him. But, I mean, where do you think this leaves the manager, Unai Emery? Because, you know, he tried to draw a line under this issue last week by saying, you know, he's the one who decides who takes penalties. Yet we have Nasser Al-Khalifi reaching out to both Cavani and Neymar, uh, be it through intermediaries to try and resolve the situation himself. Neither players backing down. I mean, uh, he's got his hands full with all these egos, hasn't he, in trying to find a resolution to this situation? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, this really demonstrates just how tough a job um, managing these types of dressing rooms can be. And personally, I, I really rate Unai Emery as a coach, particularly with the work he did at Sevilla. But he's known, he's known as a character who's very intense in his methods maybe he's maybe sometimes too intense for some players but he's very he's very focused on getting things right making sure that the smallest detail is is correct and these sort of distractions will will infuriate him um it's it's the part it's this part of the job that goes beyond tactics and preparation even the usual kind of constraints of man management i mean there's only so many people who can deal with with a group with a group of players like this and managing balancing egos and personalities in the dressing room is tough. Um, we've, seen, we've seen the how good a job Zinedine Zidane has done at Real Madrid, but then again, Zidane is Zidane. He's one of the greatest the greatest footballers of the modern era. And, and Unai Emery wasn't, um, but quite frankly, and there's very few managers who can who can deal with that with that dressing room successfully. And, and it's just the fact that this is such such a high risk season for PSG with all the investment, with all the talk 
and the fact that they came up short last season I mean that's really all or nothing on success this year so it's 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 very very high stakes for him I mean as you say there it is a distraction essentially for PSG it's overshadowed what has been a positive start to the season, 21 goals scored, I think, in their first seven leagues games. I mean, do you think things could potentially escalate from here? Is this simply egos clashing, you know, it's all going to blow over? Or do you think it could develop into something more something more worrying? Well, yes, when the money invested, um, I, I mean, it, it wouldn't, in terms of regaining the league one title from Monaco, that's, that's a priority, that, that's a must. And I, I'm not sure anybody's even contemplating that not happening at the minute. I mean, that, that is the bare minimum achievement from PSG. Um, but they also really must put up an extremely strong showing in the Champions League this year. Um, and, and yes, they, they've made a flying start um, to their campaign, obviously both both in Liga and in the Champions League with, it, with the win at Celtic. But um, there's, there are major challenges that lie ahead. And Monaco have made a very strong start as well. And Nice, again, are looking strong this year. And, and, and whilst it might only be between Monaco and PSG, there's going to be a lot of stumbling blocks. And they're going to need to be they're going to need to be focused and they're going to need to be concentrated on exactly what they need to do. Because, as you allude to there, those sort of distractions could potentially unravel an entire season. And at the moment, it, it, is, it is genuinely tough to see how they can totally eradicate this without doing something... If I do doing something quite quite sort of drastic at the minute, so it's um it's going to be really interesting to see how this one pans out. Well, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about Neymar versus Cavani in the coming weeks. For now, though, Colin, thanks so much for joining us on the front three. Where can the listeners find more of you? Well, I'm as I said, I'm a deputy editor of Football España, um, and I'm also also quite active on Twitter. Um, my uh, my username is at Miller Understash Colin. Um, so I've been tweeting quite a lot about, I've tweeted, I've already tweeted quite a lot about the name of my situation amongst other things there, so uh, that'd be perfect. Right, part three, before we finish up then, guys, uh, big thanks to, uh, to Colin Miller for coming on the show, of course. Do go and check him out on Twitter. But is there any other business we want to discuss, any other happenings from over the weekend we've seen we want to point out? I wonder if you guys have heard the story of uh, Malcolm, the Bordeaux winger. Have you heard of this guy? I've heard of him, yeah. No. Setting the league I'm, alive. I'm well, yeah, yeah. With the story you're about to tell. Yeah. Oh, I'm not. <laughs> uh, Lawrence, Dave. Uh, I mean, Dave, you obviously have heard of Malcolm, the young 20-year-old Brazilian setting the league alight. But have you heard of his brother, Dewey? Dave, no, any strong thoughts on his brother, Dewey? <laughs> no. Apparently just as talented. Don't know if you saw this. This uh, it came out on the, uh, the football website, Football France, this weekend that Bordeaux have actually signed his little brother, Dewey, on a two-year contract, you know, thinking the talent runs in the family tree. Um, now, you might not be aware. I mean, it's probably only people of our age who might be aware of this. But uh, Dewey was also the name of the younger brother of Malcolm in the show, Malcolm in the Middle, uh, right. funnily enough. Where's this going? So, uh, Where's this it going? turns out, Dewey doesn't exist. It was all right. a cunning ruse. It was all a joke, a reference to Malcolm in the middle. Just a bit of fun. It was a satirical news website called Football France. You know, the opposite of France football, the actual website. Um, but it actually suckered in quite a few uh, respected journalists, as it were, in nice. France. Um, there was one particular journalist on Canal Plus who, you know, a so-called expert who was talking up the arrival of Dewey, saying it was a fantastic signing for the club. <laughs> Even though it doesn't exist. The guy doesn't exist. It's an extremely <laughs> obscure Malcolm in the Middle joke that has, uh, 
that has tricked France. So there you go. I thought that was worth bringing Wait, up. You say he's a winger? Uh, Malcolm is, yeah. I don't know about Dewey. Not sure what position he plays in myself. Did they make but, a joke uh, a few weeks ago on the podcast about Malcolm in the middle or something? Malcolm. <laughs> Maybe that's where it all comes from. They were listening to the front three and they got inspired. But um, yeah, I just really like sort of football pranks, fake football news jokes that are based on 90s tv shows i mean it really it really hit the sweet spot for me this one um anyway moving on any other business from around the world of football this weekend guys that you want to talk about conte did a little interview conte did a little interview in oh, italy yeah. he said he misses italy he's leaving he wants he's to leaving come Chelsea, home basically he's on his way already adam he's already on his way to italy um he says he misses home um and that he'll be back before too long but i I kind of feel like Chelsea factored that in. I think he's, you know, if he doesn't leave at the end of this season, he'll leave at the end of the one after and they'll have someone that they want to bring in. It'll be Ancelotti or Hiddink or um, someone like that. And uh, One of the former guys, be, be, just bring him back. It would actually be interesting to see what Ancelotti would do with his team. He's not, um, you know, he's, he's not the, the typical intense character that might pick up. But when we saw Allegri obviously pick up off the back of Conte, you know, there was there were some real positives there. Maybe we'll see the same hey, with Carlo. Ancelotti doesn't look like he's long for the job in uh, in Germany. So uh, you know, could uh, could make a return to Stamford Bridge. I mean, it does yeah. feel like it is a short term appointment or a short term stay that Conte is going to have at Chelsea. Dave, is there anyone you think you'd like to see uh, see succeed him at the club? Um, I think there could be some interesting managers. Thomas Tuchel, obviously, the one out of the job at the moment that's been linked was linked at the end of the transfer window. He? he was the one that was thrown about. Could be quite interesting, but I think it's more a defensive-minded manager would suit Chelsea. I think the transition would be easier than than going from you know a Conte style to a Thomas Tuchel style. Maybe it wouldn't be, but that could be quite an interesting appointment. I want to see him in the Premier League to see how he does. I expect if um, he were to join Chelsea, they'd start leaking goals, um, but they'd score loads. You know, it'd be sort of a flip to what Conte's doing with Chelsea right now. Do you think, though, Dave, he'd be too? The reason he wouldn't join is because he was seen as a bit of a disruptor of the hierarchy at Dortmund as well. I think that's an interesting one. I think he's more of a you know an authoritarian manager that doesn't like having a director of football. I just don't think he suits that European model, um, especially when you know he doesn't see eye to eye with the chief exec and uh, Michael Zorg, who obviously worked so well with Jurgen Klopp. So I think it, it could be uh, an interesting one with with Abramovich. But obviously they've got that uh, the fella that is their director of football, uh, Michael MNEK, is it? Emanalo. Emanalo. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Emanalo. Emanalo. But yeah, that could be a bit of a problem then, maybe. So maybe that wouldn't work out. Hey, the favourite's Diego Simeone. It always has been. So be interested to see if he rolls up next season. He just signed the new deal at Atletico. Yeah, contracts don't mean nothing, mate. He's off to Inter Milan anyway, I'm sure. That's a good point. Um, What about about Lille? What about Bielsa at Lille? Things really are not going well for him. I think he's got one win in something like uh, seven games now. And they're in the relegation zone. After Didn't he sack 14 players over the summer with, with the text message? Oh God, that's classic, classic man management. He did, yeah. I think Rio Mavubu was one as well. Pretty uh, well-respected name over there. I don't know. I don't think he was at the level that he was at his pomp, but still. I, I mean, I mean that's still in a nutshell, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, it's a pretty fascinating one because I think a lot of people see, sort of see Bielsa as... I mean, obviously, a lot of people follow him. Um, they're, sort of, they're considered to be sort of disciples of Bielsa, um, not least Pochettino. Um, so it's sort of interesting to see. I mean, I guess it's, you know, either the players follow you or they don't. Uh, but I would be interested to see if Bielsa left somewhere like Lille, 
maybe if uh, another struggling club in the Premier League went for someone like him, that would be pretty fascinating mm. to see Pochettino, Bielsa, Conte, uh, another appreciator of Bielsa being Pep Guardiola in there as well. Klopp, obviously. Do you think? Um, there's a lot of do you think people the, who could uh, it'd be interesting to him face. Do you think the problem, Dave, with Bielsa is I see a lot of people say that you know, as Lawrence says, that you know he's influenced a lot of managers, a lot of modern greats in the game. But you know, whereas those managers and maybe the European game as a whole sort of developed, maybe. Bielsa hasn't. Is that a fair sort of accusation to level at? And I just don't think Lille. Are, you know, going to Lille, uh, the, the Lille team isn't that great at the moment. You know, they don't have that yeah. many players that you could potentially push this style to. So maybe it is an application. You let them all style. go. I, I kind of get that, but then you know we let uh, Real Mavuba, as you mentioned, was that what you said before? Real Mavuba, yeah. the centre mid. Yeah. At the end of his career, is he going to be able to play Bielsa-style football? Absolutely not. But I think with Lille, before this season, they were playing very deep, very compact, looking to counter-attack. You're not really doing anything in Ligue 1. So from, to go from that to Bielsa football, again, it's going to take time. And I think that's the big thing. Things take time. Lille have got a fantastic academy. Bielsa was reported to have been watching their academy pretty much for the whole of the summer. So you could expect some players to come out um, from this sort of storm. And I kind of think they'll do they'll do all right. Obviously, Monaco did tear them apart at the weekend, but Monaco are going to tell it a lot of teams in Liga apart again uh, with Falcao. Obviously, Falcao, only PSG, I think, as a club have scored more goals than Falcao this season. So it's just one of these things where players like um, you know Ezekiel Ponce, it's going to take some time for him to bed into French football and so forth. Uh, Nicolas Pepe, apparently, has been one of the guys to watch. Um, from people that I sort of speak to about Liga. Uh, so I think that, I think it'll be okay, but I think it's just going to be a work in progress for Bielsa and you know, maybe adapting himself slightly, you know, moving um, away from the three at the back, maybe going to a, you know, the standard formation he played at Bilbao, the 4-3-3 in a way. Um, it might work a little bit better for them. Well, that brings an end to this Monday's Front Free Weekend Review podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until Thursday, when we'll be back with the Q&A podcast. Chris... Where can the listeners find you? Uh, updating the bio for the front three Twitter accounts. Hey, I, really? I think I did oh. that on yesterday while oh. my fiance was in a clothes shop. I may have added a certain name on there. Um, but yeah, well, maybe we'll talk about that on well, Thursday. Chris read it and thought it was shit and now he's deleted <laughs> yeah. yeah, take it back off. Um, Lawrence, where can people find you before Thursday? I'm going to be going and reading the Twitter bio of the front mm, three. Very good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah did good. You- just go and get me a read. Just go and get me a read. Uh, Dave, where can people find you? You had um, available at iTunes, Adam. Is that where you... So you want the listeners to know that you can get the front free podcast on iTunes as well as on Acast? On Acast. Oh, good. It's, it's all about iTunes, mate. Come on. It's all about iTunes. Everyone's got iTunes. Dave, you got any videos that you want to plug? Manchester United based? Um, I've got this loads week? of videos this week. Hey. I think I've got one a day. <sighs> the, uh, for people that like don't like Manchester United, I've got one going out on Madrid. Atletico Madrid, sorry. Uh, tomorrow, I do believe. Oh, fantastic. Um, so check that one out. Keep your eyes peeled on the Statman Dave channel. Then uh, you can find me on Twitter, Adam Boltwood. Do get your reviews in on iTunes. Uh, rate and review the front free to be in with a chance to be in whole of the week, the listener of the week on Thursday's podcast. Until then, have a bloody great week and enjoy the Champions League action. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.